Imperva is the comprehensive digital security leader on a mission to help organizations protect their data and all paths to it. Only Imperva protects all digital experiences from business logic to APIs, microservices, the data layer, and from vulnerable legacy environments to cloud-first organizations. With an integrated approach combining network, application, and data security, Imperva protects companies ranging from cloud-native startups to global multinationals with hybrid infrastructure. Start a free trial today and quickly protect your web app applications at securityweekly.com slash imperva. Welcome back to Application Security Weekly. We just talked with Josh Grossman about creating a new version of the ASVS, bringing security to developers, and the direction of OWASP in its support of flagship projects. I'm your host, Mike Shima. I'm here with John Kinsella and Akira Brand, and it's just about time for the news. But first, one announcement. Identifirst 2023 is heading to Vegas. Join the digital identity community at the Aria Resort and Casino, May 30th to June 2nd. Identifirst is a must-attend annual event that brings together over 2,500 security professionals for four days of world-class learning, engagement, and entertainment. As a community member, you're able to receive 20% off your Identiverse 2023 tickets using code ISV23-SW20. Don't worry, it's on the site. I register today at securityweekly.com slash Identiverse 2023. John Akira, it's great to have you both here this week. I have a uh, just a real quick AP I don't know question to start us off with. Uh, listener John asks, where can I find those synthwave artists you mentioned at the end of the show? Well, good news, uh, listener John. I've created a playlist on title that I'll put into the show notes. And uh, once Bandcamp brings their playlist support out of uh, beta, I'll be sharing that over on Bandcamp as well. So go, go buy some music, support your artists, and uh, have some great synthwave to code to. Um, in addition to coding, we have a couple of articles here about code gone wrong, protecting code and all sorts of things. But maybe we'll start with things that went wrong about caching. Uh, Akira, uh, let's give you first strike on this. Loom is looming. Tell us more. <laughs> Loom is looming. That's so good. Um, yeah, so what happened with Loom is there was a configuration change to their CDN. And what that did is it caused incorrect session cookies to be sent back to the users. So um, long story short, essentially users were able to log or were getting content that was not meant for them. Um, and something that I was really impressed by with Loom is that actually about, I want to say about a half hour after they discovered this vulnerability, they actually decided to turn the app off. And I thought that that was really impressive because it definitely pointed to that they're a lot more serious about security than they were necessarily about like making getting the business, um, how do I say this? Um, like they're, they're making security a business priority in that moment. Um, and I think Mike, it would be good if you wanted to maybe dive into the technical side of things and we can maybe discover that a little bit together. Indeed. And I think this was the type of uh, transparent write-up that's nice to see. When it starts off with a phrase like, we care deeply about privacy and security, um, it's a different take on when we take your security seriously. But when every single sentence after that provides details, walks through what they did, walks through their analysis, walks through their 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 insights, it actually supports that opening sentence. So this that's what's really nice to see. As you noted, uh, this the and as the 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 uh, write up notes, 
caching is always a caching is is one of those uh, what three areas of naming naming things and off by one. I can't remember what all three are. My brain is dead today. But caching problems lead to security problems, especially if you've cached set cookie headers like had happened in this case, or even if you're caching the profile or the the, the content that's being returned to individuals, and then there could be almost uh, just a uh, a Russian roulette with your with your of your privacy breach notices if you're if you're returning cache information to the wrong user. So the the timeline walks through their analysis that they were prepared for this. They show that they didn't go into this blind. They did testing. They thought this through. It was a very deliberate change to adopt the CDN. Of course, what they didn't realize is that the set cookie header was being cached, and that set cookie was giving basically with everyone else who visited someone else's cookie. Therefore, now rather than uh, as we say, you know, cred active credentials are the best backdoor into a system. If you don't even need the credentials and you have that authentication token, a cookie in this case, you can see someone else's data. Now. What was really interesting is that they also say this only happened within a, a one-second one second time window, was the, the uh, window of opportunity for seeing someone else's data. And also that it was limited to, uh, you know, just a, a certain, a brief period of time throughout the day when it was first notified to them or indicated to them that something bad was happening and they fixed it. So I think all in all, a pretty good write-up. It's impressive that they can come back to say 0.18% of total workspaces, in other words, users may have been impacted. Um, so they're biased towards the, the upper end of potential disc, uh, users who were impacted. But uh, logging has been a theme uh, last uh, two or three uh, episodes. And I think if you have good logging that can give you confidence to make a statement like that, that's another good sign. So I think all in all, great to see transparency from this. And this is the type of breach notification that we'd like to see more of, despite that we'd like to see fewer breaches overall. I want to jump in real quick on this. Um, I try to look really quickly on LinkedIn. Uh, I don't have time because my my things are slow. Um, but at least if I look at Loom's homepage, I don't see um, a, a CISO listed. I see like a CTO, the guy who wrote this this message. I thought that was interesting. Who's responsible for security there? Do they have someone at C-level um, or even VP? So that's hmm, company with 200 million in funding. That's interesting. Um, and then the second thing, it's sort of taken a step back. We we're quite fond of, of doing the funny haha around we care deeply about privacy and security. Any thoughts on how companies should be, how should they be communicating out to people that they actually care instead of just using that boilerplate sentence? Yeah. Honestly, it's an excellent question because if we, we, if we say, well, what should they be saying instead? I think in this case, that was a great opening sentence because yeah. everything else supported that. They showed that here was the change that we expected to do. We'd actually gone through different sets of preparation for that change because we know that major changes have consequences, just bugs in general, as opposed to security vulns. But then when they identified that there was a security issue, they shared what they did about it. They shared their root cause analysis. And I think they also shared, you know, they didn't say how they would prevent it in the future, but they said that they have installed, uh, you know, new processes, updated process to prevent that. So I think that combination of, it's wonderful to, please do say you take, or let's just say, rather than say, please do take security and privacy seriously. 
but then demonstrate how you do that. And I think if you say what you were, what you would have had expected to happen, what actually happened that surprised you, and how you responded to that, those to me, I think, are the three things that um, make this type of disclosure useful to me and uh, gets rid of the cynicism. Uh, there's a, a bit of a callback to our last episode. So I'm not sure if that answers your question, John, or if there's perhaps even different format or, or phrasing that we could be looking to or here. Oh, no, it, it's really, I'm just, um, I, I'm trying to sort of, you know, give the listeners some sort of, mm-hmm. uh, not just for us to think about, but our listeners, like, yeah. okay, at some point, mm-hmm. a, a senior developer in a you know any size company that's listening to this, they might get the shoulder tap from the the, the boss man or woman saying, "Hey, <laughs> we have to write something," and they have to start frantically typing. It's like, okay, how do you, what do you put into that, right? And we've talked before about like what what a good um, versus not great uh, version of mm-hmm. this type of a document looks like, and this is a pretty good one. But okay, if you're if you're going to go out to your customers and say, you know, we we care. It, it, the phrase gets so overused, so heavily used. Like, how do you? Is there is there a way to communicate that you know without going to a thesaurus or how? how do that, that's really the, the one I'm thinking about. Yeah, one I think thing I would. Oh, go ahead, Mike. Nope. Oh, I was going to say you, you pointed out, uh, John, real quick that yeah. uh, this was written by the CTO, yeah. and we've actually we've highlighted a couple other. I think it was was the Reddit one as well that I think was also written by the CTO. That was also a good degree of transparency, basically treated like an engineering postmortem. Um, whereas the last past uh, breach we looked at, that was released from the CSO, and it wasn't as great. The, it, there, there was it wasn't as much of that that engineering style postmortem. There wasn't as much transparency. It was a, a trickle of information. So perhaps one of the things I'd, I'd suggest there is approach this as an engineering postmortem, with the caveat that your audience is not just engineers. Your audience are lay people who don't necessarily understand CDN's caching, what the set cookie header is, or necessarily have to care, but at least put it in the language that explains, that that demonstrates you knew what happened, that someone with some more, an AppSec folks, the DevOps team, for example, can look at that and learn from it, um, but doesn't use jargon that is just obfuscating the picture or making it sound like, may, making it even more confusing for, for, the, for the listener. So maybe that's what I would add there for our listeners uh, to think of as well. And Akira, you had something. Oh, Mike, just to prove that great minds think alike, I was literally going to say this reads like an engineering postmortem. So <laughs> as I'm reading this, if I'm putting myself in the shoes of a software developer, this would make sense to me. Um, and it would also be something that I could take and put into my own work relatively simply, mm-hmm. um, maybe not easily, but it would be straightforward and say, oh, okay, like now I know I need to not use a set cookie response header. Um, as opposed to something like the last pass write up where it's like, okay, like I know there's something wrong, but how can I apply this to my work? How can I make myself better and security minded as a software developer right here in this loom transcript? This is very straightforward. Um, the only other thing I would say that I would suggest for our listeners, if you have something like this is first off, definitely write something very similar to this uh, where it's like almost like an engineering postmortem where software developers can take lessons from it, where it reads very straightforwardly um, and quite technically, but without getting too bogged down by jargon. But I would even suggest having a second post that is geared toward layman. I've never seen this. I don't know that this is industry standard, but I have some colleagues actually that are not technically savvy that we're trying to use Loom 
And they were part of the, the uh, people that were kind of locked out when Lou went down for a little while. So I mentioned to them, oh, wow, like, I hope your data wasn't compromised. And that freaked them out. They're like, wait, what do you mean? Mate? What, what are you talking about? Um, so having something like that that's more geared toward laymen and, and customers that are not technically savvy would also be useful, I think, to rebuild that trust. Because right now, this document rebuilds trust with other developers. It rebuilds trust with technical people. But it doesn't necessarily rebuild trust with a layman who doesn't understand that this is a well-written document. Yeah, and perhaps there is that aspect of define what was your potential exposure if you were affected, what might have been the consequences, and clearly, is there is there a next step that you need to take? You as an end user, meaning we're recommending change your passwords, be on the lookout for an email reset, or carry on, we've taken care of it. There's actually nothing you need to do um, because it's backend fixes, or for, for lack of a better term, off, off the top of my head. Um, but let's, we'll come back to these ideas of, of communication, discussing breaches, because we have a whole bunch of other uh, articles to get through. And I want to go through, turn to GitHub real quick, because the three of us each picked a different aspect of GitHub to, to highlight this week. I was saw that starting today, they're going to start, GitHub will start their year-long campaign to enforce and require 2FA across, for, for everyone, for all developers, which is a great, check, uh, great step forward. What I liked about this is they were giving a nod towards this isn't in, this isn't the type of thing you do overnight. So I think this points out to um, avoiding the appsec mentality of just deploy 2FA and your problems are solved. It's more of how do you deploy 2FA with a large group, uh, you know, with, with, with across a large population of developers? How do you make sure that account recovery still works so that everyone doesn't get locked out? And what was interesting in this to me. If you do get locked out of your account and the your email address is the unique identifier for your account, how then do you just open a new account with your same email? Um, so there, there's a lot of interesting things that they went into considerations here for usability. Uh, so that's what I thought was kind of neat, just as pointing out, it takes a lot of work to do this type of broad population shift. So I don't know, uh, John, if there's something else you would want to add there or take us to your um, view of GitHub this this week. Um, it's it's interesting. This is it's good that they did this, um, but at the same time, I'm like, I've got that turned on for at least a year, if not years. And I'm like, oh, okay, but I mean, I guess for for the larger organization, for the larger population of developers, not a security nerd, it's a really great thing. Um, yeah, I, I sort of, if we don't mind, I want to hit um, Akira's story first, and then I'll come to mind if that's yes. cool. Yeah, yeah, sure. I'm, I'm not trying to do a gotcha, but I'm going to do a gotcha. So. There's oh, no, you're totally fine. Okay, cool, cool, cool. Um, yeah, so actually the thing that really stuck out to me about Mike's article, which will lead into why I chose my article, is um, talking about how developer accounts are frequent targets for account takeover. And by doing something like 2FA, it's the first step into securing the software supply chain. Um, kind of how that stuck out to me was it's not the only step, it's not the end step, but there's just, it's just the first step. So my article actually is um, linked uh, on this original article from Mike, and it's called How to Secure Your End-to-End -End Supply Chain on GitHub. So there's a couple of things that they recommend. Number one is securing your accounts. Number two is securing your code and your supply chain and securing your build system. 
So they have guides for all of these. Uh, the one that I wanted to highlight is securing your code in your supply chain. So if you actually go to my listed article, you can click on securing your code in your supply chain listed under that header and just see a really cool best practices guide. Um, now, a lot of this guide is essentially about uh, creating inventory of your dependencies, knowing when there's a security vulnerability in the dependency, um, making sure you have dependency reviews on your pull requests, and also assessing the impact of the vulnerability on your code. At Resilia, we do this automatically. We've automated this with a tool. And um, it, what I notice is that it's a great opportunity to open the door with software developers on our team to talk about what is a software supply chain? Um, what is it? What is it? vulnerability and dependency mean for you. Even though we've automated this whole process, it's a really great way to bring our developers into the tool that we're using and saying, okay, here's here's what this means um, by having a vulnerability and a dependency, and here's why we need to update it. Not just like, oh, hey, we're blocking this PR and you need to fix it within a week, or we're not going to let you continue your work. So I think this is just kind of points back to software uh, developer education um, beyond just telling developers to just put on 2FA or update their dependencies. All this is teachable moments. These are all learning opportunities. Um, and that's why I linked my article because there's just really great uh, guides that you can use as an AppSec professional, but also point your developers towards. I thought it was interesting from the point of view of it, it the, the, the direct link from your, that you put in there, it's, it could be seen as hand wavy, but really it gives a nice overview of things as I hand wave. But um, what's what's nice about it is that then you're able to click down in and find out more about those things. I think mm -hmm. I'd sort of like to go deeper, but I mean, I, I haven't clicked all the way down the rabbit hole. There, there's, as you go deeper, you get more links and so you can keep diving and diving and diving. Um, so yeah, pretty neat. Yeah, I mean, it starts out really high level, like, yeah, secure your supply chain, take an inventory management, but then also like in this best practices document, you can talk about like securing your communication tokens. You can keep vulnerable coding patterns out of your repository. It just, it goes deep very quickly, um, which is pretty cool. And then it also will show like different things within GitHub um, that you can use like different tools. For example, like when you're keeping vulnerable coding patterns out of your repository, there's a whole section on code scanning that GitHub just rolled out. I think it was like a month or so ago um, where you can take a look and see if there are vulnerable coding patterns and also if there are secret scanning as well. So it's a really good resource. Um, definitely something worth clicking around and just keeping in mind again, that developer education aspect, um, not just what can this do for me, but what can this do for my devs? Um, yeah, and, and two real brief thoughts there. One, um, I see mention of GitHub Advanced Security. For those who don't know, that that costs the, the dollars or your currency of choice. Um, and then the second thing, a great way to uh, use some of these scanning, not just the, the built-in tools which GitHub has, but also you know third-party scanners out there, either open source or commercial like yours, is um, GitHub Actions, which will be my segue into yes. the third story. Um, there you go. And uh, the guys over at ChainGuard, I think, I don't know if we've talked about them directly or not in the past, but we have talked about their big contributor to um, Salsa and things like that. Um, they have a blog post where they figured out something interesting. So it turns out the way when you're, you know, for those, you know, quick review of Git for, for those who maybe you don't know it, 
Um, you've got a project on GitHub, so you make, might want to make some modifications. So you check it out or you do what's called a fork of the project, right? So you have your own individual copy and it's, it's there's hist historical connections back up to the parent, quote unquote parent, but it's, it's your own little beast. Um, and it turns out, I'm, I'm leaving some of the details of the article out, it, it's a good read, but it turns out if you make commits on that fork, in some cases, it becomes difficult to figure out, is that commit, that hash you have, is that from on your fork or does that come from the parent? And there's tools out there to sort of help you figure this stuff out. If, if you're, I'm sure many of our listeners, if you're, you're working with, you know, doing software development commercially, professionally, you'll, you'll you play with some of the tools out there. Like, how do you visualize either branches or forks and how those things get merged back in? Or like, it, it you know, where did the commit actually come from? How did that, how does someone work on that? And so part of this is, how does how GitHub itself actually displays that, or handles, I should say, that that commit on a fork? So some in some cases, depending on when you use that, it might look like you're referring to the the master or the parent uh, source tree. So for those who don't know, in Git, you're able to you know you can check out something or you can refer to a commit either by its tag if it's tagged or the branch it's on or um, you know, the actual SHA of the, the commit, or there's a few different ways you can actually refer to, hey, I want this specific version of this code, right? This commit with this very particular thing, which was just updated. Um, and in some cases, what someone would do if that's, so that could be referred to as pinning your code, right? If you're going, if you're going to check out a very specific version, you say, I want this very, ver this version, not a, not a version release or a tag or anything else. I want this commit hash. So you do something like git checkout, um, the branch name at, and then the, the hash after it. Uh, that can also be used if you want to pin the version of an action which you're using. So if you're if you set up actions on GitHub, and say you want to do use an open source tool to scan your code, or um, yeah, let's, let's keep it simple. Stick that example. There's some sort of thing you want to run against your code in an action, and what you would actually do in your uh, in your GitHub actions uh, configuration, you'd say step uses and then the actual URL to the to branch, and then as I said, the at and the actual hash. So it turns out in some cases, it's not gonna be clear either to you or to GitHub, is that referring to a commit in your branch or enough fork off of it? So that could be used for if you're able to, I mean, you still have to get access to that GitHub Actions file to be able to modify it, right? But you could, as a attacker, a malicious user, you could put a commit in there which looks like it's completely fine, and it would just be going, oh, there's nothing wrong there, but you're actually got code which you're controlling, which is actually running on someone else's repo. Um, yeah, and for those who are, are not watching the, uh, the the video version of this, uh, um, uh, Akira's eyes sort of opened up, which is the appropriate response on this. A uh, little bit of a long walk into that, but yes, they, they sort of walk through this in detail. Uh, and you know they they have tools, um, ChainGuard has tools around um, signing and, and you know, um, helping keep track of, of some of these type of things. So they've open sourced one of them. Uh, it is called, I don't have my screen right now. Oh no. Um, Clank, C-L-A-N-K, um, on ChainGuard's uh, repo that actually sort of helps visualize or is that, where did that commit come from? Is that something we really want to be using? Uh, so for people who might be thinking about doing that type of thing, that, that might be something you want to check out. John, yeah, can you tell us more about the code signing aspect of this? 
Yeah. So from this point of view, and this is, we talked, the article you had was actually talking about signing releases and things like that as well, right? So -hmm. the idea being, if you, and there's different ways you can sign code. You can either sign the release or sign each commit or do different things. Excuse me as I snuffle. But what would go on if you're signing your commits, uh, you can do this either built in with um, GPG. You can configure Git to use GPG. I believe you can configure Git to use the um, uh, the chain guard guys' tools as well. That'll actually put the commit, put the signature into the commit itself. So at that point in time, then you can use either look at that manually or you can use tools, but you can go back and go, is this commit actually as it was signed? Does that thing match up? Um, so that'll give you a sense of both um, ownership of that as well as has been modified. Has someone gone back with like a get commit dash dash append and modified something after a signature commit? Um, so that's a general idea there. But in in if you're doing something like this, I mean, just off the top of my head, maybe the first step you'd want in your action is verify the commit of the next of that actual pinned version, and then go ahead and use it. But that it's it you'd have to sort of think through how to do it. Good question, Akira. But that's sort of a general idea. Yeah, and code signings was interesting too. That was on my because I th- was thinking I, I like the idea of code signing, uh, but even in the write up they call out eh, code signing may or may not have even helped here because it's yeah. complex. And um, just as a real quick comment on that. I do in my own, uh, you know, in my own work, in my own unside, use GPG-based signing, but I also just have a single device I'm coming from. I'm less worried about the the managing keys and so on. And that's where SigStore uh, was was trying to help with um, managing keys, so that not everyone ha- in this day and age needs to set up their own PKI. Because once you're doing that, uh, you've just got more complexity, more gnarly stuff that's going to go wrong with signing. And the nice thing with the SigStore tools. Um, beside the fact that it gives you actual decent signing on things like container images, unlike the other stuff. Uh, I've done that rant before. Uh, but it actually keeps a database of those commits, of those signatures, of those signings, excuse me. So you're able to see even without looking at the Git code of like, hey, there's actually a signature passed through here. And that gets sort of expensive if you're signing each commit that way. But that could give you an out-of-band way of actually checking those things as well. Sort of neat. Absolutely. Um, keeping an eye on time, I want to throw on, I throw out there, I've been tracking, uh, John, I think you and I mentioned last week, maybe the week before, about tracking projects that are moving to Rust or moving from C and C++ to memory safety areas. Uh, just a real quick note here, Apache patches two important bugs. Uh, this is a bit rare because we, we don't, usually don't see Apache bugs dropping into the news or coming across the radar. And mostly I just wanted to note this as, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not the end of the world, but it's uh, yet more request smuggling that is uh, plaguing the server. And there was at least one effort to create, to bring Rust into Apache, but that was done by the, the memorysafety.org uh, group. Prosimo, I think, is the, the the name of the project, who created Mod TLS, uh, which drop in replacement for Mod SSL. But what was interesting is that was the the Internet Security Research Group that did that work. It wasn't the ASF, and so far as I can tell, the ASF is pretty fine with the way that the implementation implementation of HTTPD and C, and there's no plans to replace that in Rust. So. It's just interesting to see what different the, the different paths, um, different um, software projects decide to take on. Either there's too much lift, we need you know where's the investment to make a rewrite, a refactor into a different language, or we'll just stick with what we have. And 
Yes, the the 2.4 security page does have a decent list of memory safety issues, but uh, not the end of the world. My main question is, who makes these decisions at the end of the day? Is it the Apache Foundation? Like, okay, we're going to go ahead and do this rewrite. How do they take in that input? Like, what filters in to their decision to do something as huge as refactoring to a different language? So Apache... This is we're getting out of my um, pet peeves here. Apache is an organization. HTTPD is the actual project. Um, so Got the it. Apache is a, a group of communities um, where I'm a member, so I can talk about this in detail. What would happen something like this is the community of the Apache HTTPD project would say, "Hey, we don't feel confident in what's going on with with our with our web server. We feel the need that." Um, we want to go down that path. There'll probably be a vote on it. We'll probably have to go to the PMC, the Project Management Committee, and say, "Hey, we're going to go in a different direction." Um, after all that, it wouldn't surprise me if they created a HTTPD-Rust and actually create a separate project. Maybe they have the same project, but that'd be sort of the, the technicalities that would go on behind the scenes. Um, this is obviously the oldest project at Apache. Uh, the chance of them rewriting that. Um, I'd be quite shocked. Uh, there's a lot going on there, right? Because you've got your plugin framework, you've got all the plugins, um, you've got a ton of tuning which has happened on this over the last many years. Uh, so yeah, my, my guess is you'd see something like on memorysafety.org, another good website, Mike. Uh, you might actually see a, a separate version, like maybe Nginx or something else is being done in this. Right. Um, yeah. But yeah. And I think in part of the part of those discussions would be why? You know, mm -hmm. do we need to? Mm -hmm. uh, the same thing there was, I think um, OpenSSF was also sponsoring some memory safe curl, which sure makes sense. But curl is, uh, speaking of, of ancient projects, and I say that with kindness, um, curl is, is going to be 25 years old, I believe, in another week or two. So um, we'll, we'll remember to, to celebrate them. But um, it's had its memory safety issues, but it's not necessarily like the sky is falling type of issues that it runs into all the time. So it's also one of those, maybe we should put our, our, our work elsewhere. And if we took, talk about another foundation that we mentioned in this segment with Josh, OpenSSF, they're looking at this and they are did some work in the open about what are the top 100, the top 10 open source projects and what should we do about them? How should we invest? And the part of that investing is pen testing. Part of it is just doing, more importantly, doing a lot of work to close open issues, doing some code review, doing some coding work, because a lot of these areas, even HTTPD, even curl, they don't necessarily need a, yet another list of all the things wrong with them. They actually need volunteers to actually to, to write code. So that's that's where major investment decisions come from. And that's, as John alluded to, that's why people are going to vote. The people who actually do the work, they should probably be responsible for deciding what work do they want to invest in because they, they're the ones that are going to have to do it. A couple more stuff I want to run through real quick with the looking at... Um, Speaking of the ASVS, there was a great write-up from Clarity about uh, a smart device, in this case, uh, what was it, a um, intercom that they took apart. They did some, they, they ran some firmware on a Raspberry Pi. They played around with the uh, 
got, got a, yet another uh, a small web server running, uh, LIGHTPD running, and started to do some, some fun work that basically the write-up is, a, is almost the entire list of the ASV coverage or the OWASP top 10 of all the problems they found, from admin admin to a really, really clever uh, image-based uh, exploit that I thought was really neat to do command execution through the file name of an image. So I won't go through in details because we're getting low on time, but I think it's one of those things that it's a wonderful write-up, made me smile from start to finish, and also just made me cringe, ouch, because we still see software that ridden with, with, uh, with, with, with security problems in this day and age. Um, I wanted to comment here, mm-hmm. speaking of like building trust, right? We had the Loom example of a great way to rebuild that trust. Um, from what I took from this article, the company was contacted several times and they actually blocked their account. Like they just did not want to talk to them. So this is also a good example of what not to do as far as rebuilding consumer trust. There you go. Well, that's one of those things, especially in the IoT place, is sort of like, here are a bunch of devices, we'll dump them on the market, sell them, and support them for a year, and then walk away. And um, I don't know that that's exactly what the situation is here, but it's definitely reminiscent of such a thing in terms of just, you don't need to support something, or, or you don't if you don't want to support something, you can just walk away, and users are left with insecure, unpatchable, or unpatched uh, devices, and they bear the brunt of it. So real quick, we haven't talked about tools in a while, and I pulled up, speaking of images, I pulled up a really neat online tool from Doyensec, who I uh, watch their blog every once in a while for interesting news write-ups. And uh, Image Magic is interesting because it is a binary, does image parsing, image uh, rewriting, it can translate image from one format to, to many, many others. But it's really, it's really interesting because you can actually control through its behavior through an XML-based security policy. And that security policy uh, can help you avoid certain types. It can minimize how it calls out to the internet. It can minimize uh, as well as certain types of formats that it supports and parses or doesn't part. So it's a easy tool to use. Wanted just to highlight that. And just one other comment there, talking about image handling can be a great AppSec security interview question in the sense of if we live in a world of uh, user-generated content images, how would you secure images uploaded by your end users? And um, how would you put that into the pipeline? How do you do image parsing if you posit that image magic may have another RCE that we've seen in the past? So I wanted to mention it for those two reasons. Uh, Akira, you've got a tool as well. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I am so excited by this tool, you guys. (laughs) Um, so this one is really popular. I only personally just discovered it at a conference I went to about a week and a half ago. It is called Juice Shop. Um, it is one of the web's least buggy, buggy websites. So Juice Shop is a vulnerable web application that uh, you can use to run tools against. You can try to hack into it. Um it's a whole e-commerce site, so it's a fully-fledged website. It actually works, um, even though it's extremely insecure. And the cool thing that I'm really excited about is that it also has tutorials. Like, it has little uh, walkthroughs of how to 
solve the puzzles of um, hacking into the site. So this is a great opportunity for, of course, I'm really huge on developer education. It's top of my mind right now because we're building an app like program at Resilia. And that's, of course, a really big part of that. But you can actually use these walkthroughs to say, for example, you teach your developers about some of the things on the OWASA 10, like you teach them about cross-site scripting. And then you can use the walkthrough for cross-site scripting on Juice Shop to show them how an attacker actually might take advantage of that uh, vulnerability and hack into the app. Um, what's more is that you can also use Juice Shop as part of uh, Capture the Flag events. And from what I understand, you can also stand up uh, Kubernetes instance to have different uh, the, uh, different instances of Juice Shop to use for your developers um, in training for training purposes, so they don't have to actually run it on their local machine. Uh, the last thing I'll say about it that I kind of got a kick out of is that uh, if you decide to use it on Docker, there's actually uh, blocks in using some of the vulnerabilities because it can mess up your computer. So. Uh, I'm not totally sure on what they mean by that. I'm looking more into that because, of course, I don't want people's computers to get wrecked. Um, but, yeah, it's it's a really cool tool. And there's really cute Easter eggs and stuff hidden all over it. Like, I won't read it for you, but it's it's just a delight. So definitely check out G-Shop. <laughs> it, it is indeed fun. I think the, the, the one thing is just don't run these on your production environments, run these vulnerable web apps in areas that are constrained and set up for developers. And as Akira noted, they're, they're wonderful for training and reinforcing the types of vulnerabilities we talk about. But we've also talked in the past, we don't need to turn developers into pen testers. We need to turn them into getting an appreciation of how these vulnerabilities are exploited, how you then can have the conversation of, well, what, how would the ASVS help us defend against this? How can we better isolate systems, do things like that? So it's definitely part of a larger picture, as well as there are other larger pictures. John, take us out um, either on the tool or articles that you'd like to, to finish this up on this week. Man, I, you know, we have another tool. I'm going to let folks go and, and, and find it in our show notes. I almost feel like we should save it for next week. We'll see. Um, just since we've covered so many good. What I do want to do is one of you guys, I think it might have been you, Mike, um, had the Dropbox Engineering Career Framework, mm, yes, which I thought was super cool. So um, what this is is a website over on uh, Dropbox's github.io where on a left column, they've got a bunch of different, well, all pretty. I'm guessing all the engineering roles which they have in the, in the organization. So they've got software engineers, QA engineers, reliability engineers, um, security engineers, we might think about here. Um, and also I was looking at the engineering management ones, but, um, you know, so then under security engineers, they've got the different levels. So I see, so ind individual contributor, one, two, three, four, five, six, uh, all the way up to principal and then an appendix. So we can click on one of these, let's say like a staff security engineer, their IC5, and I'm calling out the, the IC file, I'll come back to that in a minute. But then it goes through actually breaking down what's, what's required for this person, you know, what's the scope of their job, um, in a, uh, um, almost a, um, uh, oh, come on brain. It's like, it's, they're, they're doing like a storyboard, uh, method of doing this. So like I deliver multi-year, multi-term security goals. I work in areas that are, that the security strategy is not defined. I may not know security problem before starting. And then it goes through, um, what are the collaborative reaches? Who should they be working with? And then their impact levers. So an example being, I demonstrate a high level of depth in a in a particular program or product category that brings unique business value. Um, so that's sort of, you know, your starting points, your, your targets, and it goes through what are the results. 
um, for this individual or type of individual um, impact ownership and decision making. So for ownership, I have a sense of responsibility and obligation to act on opportunities I see across the engineering org company. So you can see what, what I'm really sort of talking through here, the way they've done this is um, really sort of structuring uh, what each of these type of individu individuals should be doing and should be I'm trying to pick my words here, how they would be, what would be expected from them in, in their um, career. And, and folks, feel free to interrupt me if I'm, um, there's better ways to say this. Goes through direction and then talent and culture. So for culture, let's say communication, I tailor my message to my audience, presenting it clearly and concisely at the right attitude. Altitude, yes. Um, but I thought what was really interesting beside this, beside allowing each um, different level in that org to figure out what they do or <laughs> not what they do, what they're responsible for. Um, and you can sort of click back and forth and see what's the difference between the IC5 and IC2. Mm -hmm. For those of you who are thinking about job hopping, this is great for interviews. Um, and, and this is sort of what I was thinking, right? Like, you know, you, you, Frequently, if you're trying to, if you're going into a behavioral style interview, when those are out there, and you're trying to figure out what question are these people going to be asking me, well, what what is the job you're applying for? What would you be doing in that job day in day out? You know, I usually tell people to think about, um, try to think like you're a manager. What questions would they be concerned about? Can you do on the job, and how would they ask those questions? What's your answer? Well, you know, what's the scope of your job? Tell me, tell me about. Oh God, I'm not even going to try and do this, but let's see. Tell me about a time when um, you went above and beyond the scope of your job. Well. I work in a small defined security problems where the security solution might not be defined. I own the implementation and then tell a story around that, right? Um, and then the interesting thing, I think for folks who are sort of head scratching and thinking about this and where they fit in, they have this for technical program managers in different areas, is if you don't know what an IC3 or an IC4, IC5 is where you fit in here, tie the information you're getting here and go over to levels.fyi. Um, and bring up Dropbox's uh, levels for a, and don't we're not caring about salary right now, right? But that's that's what the site's for. But on level side, FYI, go find the software engineer, the security engineer, whatever else. Bring up in one of the columns their Dropbox levels, and it has you know at least I've got management up right now, so in three, four, five, six, seven, and then pick up another company you're thinking about interviewing at or whatever else, and put those side by side, and you'll see how those two levels line up, and you'll get a sense of like what your possible responsibilities are at this company. So I thought it was neat, both from a career point of view, as well as also just sort of thinking about who, who am I in the world? What do I do in life? Yeah, thank you for highlighting that. And uh, I also wanted, under the culture, seeing collaboration and communication given, you know, pointed out as front and center as important aspects for every single level of the engineers. That is quite important. It speaks to that, uh, you know, what Josh was describing. It's department of no. Mm. You can't be a department of no, or you shouldn't be a department of no if you have good collaboration and good communication skills. One of the things I'll just add to to what, what John walked through is that I like to going back to the IC two level. I haven't seen under Craft uh, similar frameworks like this actually speaking to the technology fluency and the threat fluency mm. in the sense that. Um, especially when you're junior or starting your career, it's a little bit harder to point to your experience in having impact and scope across a, a large organization. And they, I think part of this is a, acknowledging that, accommodating that, and talking about you understand either technologies used within Dropbox or technologies that are important 
throughout uh, common amongst many t- uh, uh, organizations, as well as the threats. Uh, and that goes beyond just saying you can rattle off the OWASP top 10. Perhaps you can demonstrate what you did with Juice Shop, for example. You can talk more about why the OWASP top 10 is impactful in some areas or perhaps not impactful in other areas, or even speak to the ASVS in terms of these are the flaws you've seen, but here's guidance that you would give to the generic developer about how to protect against that. And you could speak with some fluency in the sense of Python or Rust or Go or Node.js. Uh, and so those would be, I think, the, the, the additional parts I would add for the, the junior side of that career framework. Um, one thing I liked about this is underneath the craft section, um, they had these key behaviors and like Mike just pointed to, you can not only say, okay, like I have the knowledge of OS top 10, but you can start to talk about how you deployed that, um, deployed that knowledge. One thing that I've personally struggled with in my security career is knowing what technical things to start to learn next. And I think that these craft sections is a great place to start, um, especially if you are just getting started, like how I was relatively recently. Um, for example, they have like in in the IC2, one of the key behaviors is my work demonstrates basic competence as a security practitioner. I apply basic principles such as least privilege and defense and death appropriately to a set of problems within my team and projects. So if you are reading this and you don't know what defense in depth is and you don't know what principle of least privilege is, well, there's the first place to start is you need to start researching that and then start applying that um, to maybe a problem within your team. Um, So I think especially if you're looking into AppSec as a career and you need to know the basic things that you absolutely must know, I, I would agree with this list. It's not necessarily like do you know the OS top 10? It's like, do you understand the, even below that, like the most basic things that a security practitioner needs to know? And can you apply that mindset as opposed to just like a random list? Now, excellent advice. Oh, go ahead. I, I know we need to run. Um, one last thought on there is, um, excuse me, this can also be used by management if you have to do right job descriptions, which can frequently be a pain in the butt. Go figure out the person on here you're looking for and then start. I don't want to say copy and paste, but get some uh, ideas on how what should be in your JD. There we go. Excellent advice from Akira and John on that. And yes, indeed, we must wrap up. So thank you, John. Thank you, Akira. Thank everyone for listening to us Join and joining us this week. We went long, but do please subscribe. Hit that like button. Check out the show notes. And speaking of transparency, check out Lie to You by Searsha. We'll see you next time on Application Security Weekly. <laughs>